Welcome back or welcome to the Single Track Podcast. I'm your host, Finn Melanson, and this is another Golden Ticket Talk in which we meet with Riley Brady, a trail and ultra runner based outside of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, who punched their ticket to the Western States 100 late last month at the Havelina 100. In addition to memorable moments during training and the race itself, we spend a fair bit of time in the second half of the conversation discussing their experience being a non-binary athlete in our sport. But before we get started, this episode is brought to you by Inside Tracker, Kodiak Cakes, and Gnarly Nutrition. Simply go to the show notes section of this episode in your podcast player to get some of the best discount codes in the endurance community on all of their products. Thanks for your support. And with that, let's get started. Riley Brady, it is a pleasure to have you on the Single Track Podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. I think we'll get into a lot of it later in the interview, but um, I think first off, huge congratulations on your performance at Javelina and securing a golden ticket to Western States. And we're roughly three or four days removed from the event. Can you talk about where your mind's at, how you're feeling, stuff like that? Yeah, um, I'm pretty excited to be going to Western States. Uh, It's been a goal for a long time and it's finally all sort of starting to sink in now that I'm back home. so I'm, I'm taking a few days to just kind of celebrate before I start thinking about, you know, what's next. Um, but I'm, I'm really happy. Well, this is our first time meeting and I have a lot of questions about your background and your career today as a runner. First off, I'm a former East Coaster. I live in Salt Lake City now, but anytime I have an East Coaster on the podcast, I love to go into detail. So you're based in, in Pennsylvania. So, so talk about that. And I know you, you also like went to college in Vermont and you know, most of your life has been on that on that East Coast. So talk about uh, uh, why you decided to make PA uh, home to live and train. Um, well, I grew up in Pennsylvania. Um, right now I'm living in Philadelphia, but my parents are about an hour outside of the city. Um, but I'm actually planning on moving this spring out west. Um, so it's sort of been, uh, I've been on the East Coast by default for the time being. Um, I was thinking about moving and then COVID hit. Uh, so I got kind of settled back in here. Um, but now it's it's time to go. <laughs> Where are you moving out west? Uh, I'm planning on going to Boulder. Um, I've got a couple yeah. friends out there and I know it's like the cliche, everybody goes to Boulder, but um, <laughs> there's, uh, there's a few reasons why I want to be there, so. Right on. I also spend a fair bit of time on, on the show trying to promote the Salt Lake City scene. So we're, we're sad to lose a potential recruit I hear, but Boulder's awesome too. Honestly, I, I mean, Salt Lake City seems interesting. Um, I'm just a little scared of the state government in Utah. Um, the, uh, yeah, I, it, Colorado's a little more liberal, which works for me. <laughs> it makes sense. Yeah, we've there have been a couple things that we could we could do better at but uh i totally appreciate that also you're a bike mechanic which i find fascinating because i just finished reading a book zen art of motorcycle riding which i think is amazing and uh it sort of romanticized that profession and lifestyle so how did you get into that so i'm pedal bikes not motorcycles um but i after college, I did a bike tour down the West Coast with two of my best friends, um, and we didn't know anything and just kind of figured stuff out as we needed to. Um, 
And it's kind of in the back of my mind, like, it'd be kind of cool to learn how to do this and really work on bikes. Um, and then actually right as COVID was hitting, I ended up getting a job at a bike shop um, and really, really did enjoy working on bikes. Um, so I, I'm happy doing that for now, but I would like to sort of move towards the frame building side of things in the bike world. Um, yeah. That's kind of the goal. Like working for any, like out in Boulder, for example, working for any one of these reputable like gravel bike companies or road bike companies, that kind of thing? Yeah, I'm pretty intrigued by Mosaic. Um, they're based in Boulder. Um, they do uh, titanium and steel frame bikes. And I'm actually in a welding class right now. So I'm, I'm trying to kind of work my way in that direction. That's so cool. Right on. Well, I was listening to a few interviews you've done in the past. And one thing that stuck out for me is that from a relatively early age, uh, it was easy for you to forego a lot of like the classic partying lifestyle in college and high school and, and really to focus passionately on academics and running. And maybe the first question I have for you here is from a personality standpoint, do you just find that it's easy for you to commit to, to big things? Um, I don't know about committing to big things, but if I, I mean, I guess if I want to do something, then I'm pretty sure that I want to do it and will keep banging my head up against the wall until I do it. Um, but I think from a young age, like it was more that I'm just, I'm fairly introverted and it was really hard for me to connect with my teenage peers, like I just did not understand why teenagers wanted to do teenagery things. Um, <laughs> so it didn't feel like I was sacrificing. I just, I liked school. I, I liked running. Um, so it, it didn't feel like a sacrifice, like, oh, I can't go out partying tonight. It was just, I'd rather do these other things. It's impressive because I think it's such a critical skill in our sport. And I have to assume that laying the groundwork for it back then has, has paid off uh, big time as your career has progressed. Have you felt that at all? Yeah. I mean, it's hard to pinpoint any one particular thing, but, um, for a long time, you know, when I was 18, 19 and in my early twenties, like I was just laying a lot of aerobic base miles. So I have to imagine that that just kind of, you know, that adds up over time. Yeah. Well, you said it earlier that uh, securing a golden ticket, getting into Western States has been a long time goal. And I'm curious, like, what was the spark for you? Like, when did this whole mission begin? <laughs> um, I mean, I guess when I first got into the sport in college, um, I was nowhere near being able to get a golden ticket at that point, but I knew I was like, I want to go to Western States and um, getting it through the lottery sounds like it could take a while. So I'll hedge my bets and try to do both um, and have just been kind of picking away at getting faster over the last um, seven years, I guess. Um, so it it went from being kind of an unrealistic goal, I think, to, I guess, more realistic. In terms of feedback, like as you train over the years and you have this goal in mind, what what begins 
to make it more realistic in your mind that it's possible? Like what signs are you getting that uh, it's not far-fetched? And like when you line up for Javelina, for example, there's a very strong likelihood that uh, you're in contention. Um, I think, you know, as you race, you get that results feedback. Um, and I started to become aware that I was doing pretty well on East Coast races. Um, and for the past couple of years, I've gone out and done Black Canyon and have basically never been able to show up healthy um, <laughs> and ready for that race. So I, I mm. haven't had great days out there, but it still just kind of gives you a taste of like, okay, this is kind of what the field looks like. This is the pace they're running. Um, it gives you a sense of like, you know, when you're training, you, you're aware of like, oh, that's a comfortable pace or there's no way I'd be able to hold that. Um, and then at Bandera this past winter, um, I was coming off COVID and came in sixth. And that was a moment where I was like, all right, if I just had COVID, I did okay here. I think, you know, if I can show up healthy, um, and have a good day, like that's a possibility. So you mentioned the experience at Black Canyon and Bandera there. So I'm, I'm assuming you've been on this more explicit golden ticket quest, uh, a fair amount in recent years. When you picked Javelina this year, was was the assumption that if you didn't get it here, you were going to continue on the golden ticket circuit to Bandera next year and Black Canyon and Canyons until you got it? Or was this like your one focus attempt for this particular season? So it was definitely in the back of my mind that, you know, this is early season. I will have a couple other opportunities if I don't get it there. Um, but I also think that my strength is at the hundred mile distance. And so when, mm. when bandit or, um, sorry, when Havelina became a golden ticket race, I was like, yes, like, <laughs> I think I can do better at a hundred miles than I could at a hundred K. Um, so I didn't, and I went into this race thinking like, this is, this is the shot. Like, I didn't want to keep anything in the tank for like, oh, well I can, go try a Bandera or Black Canyon. Like right. I wanted to go for it here. Do you consider yourself, if we're talking about training for a second, do you consider yourself a student of the sport when it comes to X's and O's and workouts and how you structure long runs and recovering stuff? Or are you someone that prefers to uh, do all of that more intuitively and just sort of like get out the door and see where the run takes you? Uh, a little bit of a combination. Um, so I do have a coach, David Roach. Um, so he's taking care of most of the the X's and O's, I guess. Um, and I follow what he tells me to do pretty strictly. Um, and I, I like that he I like that he's doing that. Like I don't have to think about it then. Um, I just know what the workout is, and I have to do my best to execute. Um, but I'm also, I almost never look at my watch while I'm running. Um, I like to keep the data kind of out of it. And I, I do almost all of my workouts and runs based on feel. And I'll look back at the data after the fact. Um, but I'm not, it's definitely not something that I'm glued to and thinking like, oh, falling off pace. I got to pick it up or slow it down. Were there noticeable differences in this training block compared to other stuff you've prepared for like black Canyon or bandera that you can point to that you think were difference makers in 
their result uh, this past Saturday? Um, I guess, so I started working with David um, after Bandera last year. So he, working with him has definitely had me doing um, harder workouts, but also resting more, um, especially if a little injury will come up. He's very quick to say, all right, take a day off. Um, so I think the, the hard parts are harder and the easy parts are easier. Um, and I do more strides, like way more strides than I ever have done before. So I guess if I could point to something, um, probably one of those three things. I'm laughing a little bit because we've inadvertently on this podcast created so many like informal case studies for David Megan Roche or Jason Coop in the past because I'll be like, hey, like, what'd you do differently this block? And the person will be like, well, I started working with one of them. And I'm like, ah, okay, cool. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it Um, works. Well, let's talk about how the day went at Javelina. Like maybe start with what went well and, uh, and where you struggled, stuff like that, and how you overcame things. Yeah. Um, so I didn't want to go out too hard. Um, I knew that it was a really strong field, um, but I wanted to make sure, especially the first lap, just stayed really comfortable. Um, and I think I executed that well. Um, pretty early on in the race, I was running with um, Casey and Nicole. And that was awesome because I was thinking like, okay, these are two really smart, experienced runners. Um, and they're not, you know, taken off off the front of the pack either. Um, so I didn't feel like I was out of the race. Um, I, I just felt like things were where they should be. Um, the only sort of, I guess the most major snafu I ran into was that I, uh, in the second lap, I took a raspberry gel and puked twice immediately. Um, (laughs) and so then my, my plan for handling stomach issues was just like take an hour off eating to reset the stomach, um, and then try to get back to it. I tried to take another raspberry gel and then puked three more times. And so, um, I was at that point I was thinking like, this is not good. It's only the second lap. (laughs) Um, but took out the raspberry gels and started to focus on some other foods. Um, and from there, the rest of the race went pretty according to plan. Like I, my stomach felt pretty good. Um, you know, my legs were tired at a certain point, but that that's kind of to be expected. Um, so it was, yeah, it was a good day. Were there any interesting moments of competition that you can point to? Like, did you get to share the day with any fellow runners or were you, uh, on the chase in any particular laps, um, or like running with Devin, for example, or Nicole or anybody else in the field? Yeah. So I never caught Devin. Um, after I was running with Casey and Nicole for a while, I'm not sure when we kind of got a little more strung out, um, probably sometime after the second loop, if I was guessing, um, And I really had no idea what position I was running in for most of the day. Um, I was just kind of doing my best out there. Um, And then at some point uh, I passed Brittany Peterson and I was like, oh man, like she's really strong. Like I, she's probably going to catch me soon. 
Um, but I didn't end up seeing her again until the finish. Um, and then in the fourth loop coming into Jackass Junction, I found out I was in third and that was kind of the first time I had a sense of what position I was in. Um, and so leaving, leaving that fourth loop, um, I ended up catching Heather Jackson right before coyote camp. Um, mm. and that was kind of a big moment for me. I was really surprised to see her, um, cause she's just such a phenomenal athlete, even though this is her first ultra, she's just like, yeah. so, so tough. Um, and I tried to get her to come with me, but she had to get a waist light on and, um, wasn't able to, um, catch me. So, uh, those were, those are the big moments of competition, I guess, for a lot of the day I was running by myself though. It's interesting. I had a chance to pace my friend Brett Hornig on lap four of the race. And one of the interesting factors that stuck out to me was how I'll use the word discombobulating the experience was because you're on this loop that you're sharing with hundred K runners, hundred mile runners, 20 mile runners. And there's always around you runners to, to pursue and to catch up with. And Sometimes it was hard for us to identify, uh, you know, where we were in the race. And I don't know if you ever felt that experience at all. Like, where am I right now? Yeah, totally. And like, I think it's hard for the spectators too, because um, you're coming through that, you know, that shoot, you know, to the start finish area and there's people out at their tents and they're all cheering for you. Um, but like, nobody was saying like, oh my God, you're in this position, which in other races I've been in, people are like, you know, keep it up. You're running in third or you're in second. And so I think it's confusing for everybody because there's just so many people out doing this loop in multiple races. Maybe also talk a bit about what it felt like to cross the finish line, to know you were in position to snag that golden ticket. And, uh, I know I saw Jubilee Page, the race director at the finish line, and she was just dapping up everybody that came through that in the funniest way in her costume. And uh, (laughs) maybe just talk about the theatrics of the scenario too. Yeah, um, I I was definitely really happy crossing the finish line, but I'd also just run 100 miles. So I think I was like, got to make a beeline for the chair first. (laughs) Um, There's always a chair that pops up. Yeah. Um, and I kind of was in just disbelief. Like I didn't, I was like, I can't, I can't believe I just got a ticket. Um, and then it was a little bit, uh, complicated by the fact that I guess there had been some confusion about what category I was running in. Um, so pretty immediately we had to jump into that conversation. Um, so I didn't really have time to just kind of soak it up. (laughs) And I do want to get to that in a second, but how do you get that golden ticket through airport security? (laughs) That was so funny. Um, We weren't sure if they were going to say, no, you can't bring that. Um, But the TSA was awesome. I handed it to them. They were like, we're not sure if we run this through the scanner. They like took it (sighs) off, took it away somewhere. I don't know what they were doing to it, Um, but a bunch of the TSA people were kind of joking about it. Like, Oh, did you get that in a candy bar? And like, what, what is this thing? Um, so I told them like, I ran a hundred miles so that I get to run another hundred miles. And they were all like, 
you know how people react when you tell them that you run 100 miles <laughs> i've always wanted to know like how that works um very cool and then also i want to make sure because there are a lot of aspiring pro athletes that listen to this show and current elite athletes getting a golden ticket to dream knowing what you know about javelina now what advice do you have in terms of how to train for this race and how to execute this race at a high level that really stuck out for you after the experience? Yeah. Um, I think, so a lot of my training wasn't super race specific because I'm on the East coast. Um, I guess my, my workout days, um, were probably most similar. A lot of that was on like dirt road terrain, um, relatively flat. This is a relatively flat race. Um, but I really think in terms of execution, it's the cooling. Like you have to stay cool. We didn't have that hot of a day, but like there's no shade, you're indirect sun. Um, and it's a hundred miles. So like you have to just focus on taking care of yourself all day. Um, like it's a long day out there, even if you're going to run fast. Um, mm. so I think, you know, getting, getting in calories and staying cool are pretty key. Cool. Well, yeah, you mentioned it at, at the finish line. There were some issues that cropped up about your status securing the golden ticket to Western States. And I think it'd be good to talk about that here. I would love to backtrack a little bit because I think, you know, that there's good education for myself to receive in the audience about non-binary runners in our sport. And I think the first question I've always wanted to ask you is, and again, acknowledging that it can mean different things to different people. What does it mean in your case to be a non-binary runner? Yeah, for me, um, I tend to fall on the more masculine side, I guess, in terms of how I present, like you're looking at me right now, but, um, yeah. I, I, and I've always sort of, um, presented this way or, or showed up this way, um, since I was a pretty little kid. Um, I was probably considered, I know I, a lot of people referred to me as a tomboy. Um, but at the same time, I also still experience like, you know, I deal with some of the realities of being female. So I'm sort of like in this in-between zone, um, that non-binary is just kind of the best words I have at this point in time to describe my experience in the world. Um, and, you know, as a runner, it actually tends to show up a little less frequently because everybody's wearing the same clothes at races. Like, you know, everybody yeah. wears short shorts, everybody wears tights. <laughs> um, athletic clothes tend to be just, you know, a lot of people are, are dressed more similarly than in day-to-day -day life, I would say. Mm. Um, yeah, so I guess that's the short answer. <laughs> Can you also talk a bit about what it's been like so far in your career navigating our sport as a non-binary athlete? Has it been seamless? Have there been difficulties? So maybe talk about like the pros and cons of the situation and the challenges you face. Yeah. So, um, I wasn't, I'm usually pretty quiet about this. This race has kind of like thrust it into the forefront for me, um, but there have been, uh, so like Vermont 100 was kind of the first race that I did that has really started to work 
um, towards trying to be more inclusive on these things. And I, in the sign up, I registered as my gender as non-binary and the race director reached out to me and said, Hey, I noticed this. Um, how do you want to be categorized for results? Um, and I think that's how they handled it the first year. Um, and, and I said, you know, I'd like to race as female. Um, and then Amy, the race director of Vermont 100 actually put me in touch with people at ultra sign up about a year ago, um, because they were working on trying to update their site. Um, and I told them like, you know, this is how I'd like to see it, like have a place to indicate your gender, but then also your sex or, or how you want to be categorized in the results. Um, so that Mm. you can kind of separate those two things. And I, I'm, I don't know that that's really how everybody who identifies as non-binary or trans feels about this. Some people might think that's not a great system, but it works, it works for me. Um, and so I think this is the first year for Aravipa doing this. Um, and obviously, obviously it's a bigger profile race. So this is the first time I've had to really like deal with fallout, um, yeah. I guess, regarding this part of myself. So it sounds like from a logistical standpoint at, at the race directing level, at least in the races you've participated in, assuming there's still a lot of work to be done in other areas of the sport, some positive strides have been made in terms of uh, being able to, you know, select how you want to be identified and then also the category you want to race in. Um, how about on like a, on an interpersonal level, interacting with other runners in the sport, like obviously ultra running, you know, you go to a place like Cavalina, it's very communal. We had our tent city. Did you get the sense that it was a, it was a welcoming place and you were accepted for who you are and all of that, or were there challenges there? Yeah. So, um, like I said, I'm usually not very vocal about this part of myself and trying to, um, work on being better about that. But I, I never have felt like discriminated against, or, I mean, I always feel welcomed, um, when I go to races, but I'm also not necessarily talking about this. Um, like I show up looking like me, it's not like I'm changing, anything about how I dress or present. Um, but I'm also not, um, yeah, it doesn't come up in conversation or it hasn't come up in conversation so far. Yeah. And, you know, I think I should apologize. Like I know you mentioned earlier being, um, more on the quiet side and preferring to be introverted. And it's interesting whenever I talk to elite athletes like yourself in the sport, I sometimes default to this expectation or not expectation, but I wonder like, do you feel there's an obligation or a pressure to be a public advocate for something, whether it's the environment or, or fellow pro athletes, or in your case, the non-binary running community? And um, maybe I should, before we dive into the Javelina stuff, maybe I should ask you, is, is that a role you want to embrace or that you welcome? Or do you just want to be a, a fellow runner like all of us and, and just enjoy the sport as it is? Um, I... I want to run (laughs) and I'm, I'm like happy to talk about these things. And I know that, uh, visibility matters, especially for other people who might sort of feel the same way that I do. Um, so I'm not going to hide this part of myself. Um, 
but if I am going to advocate for things in the sport, like I'd almost rather um, <laughs> pick something that maybe isn't as personal um, just because the internet can be a mean place and I'm a little bit mm. scared of that. Um, I, it can also be really supportive and this community is really supportive. Um, so I, and I also can't speak for everyone. Like I am, I am who I am and I will do the best that I can. Um, but I don't know that I, I don't know that I am like here to be the spokesperson for everybody who looks like me. <laughs> well, moving to the Havelina situation, I took some notes here and I want to make sure I get the facts correct. From what I understand, you contacted the Havelina race directing team well ahead of time, you stating your intentions to race for a golden ticket in the female division. And according to registration policies, you did everything correct. There was an option to sign up as non-binary and then to choose between male and female in the results. Is that correct? Yeah. As, as far as I know, because I, I think the sign up happens through ultra sign up, which has that distinction. Okay. And then I think the, the race directing team or their media team, they acknowledged that they mistakenly miscategorized you in the live tracker results and on social media throughout the day. And I think that's what caused confusion among the fans that were watching the live stream and maybe some of the runners. Is that correct too? Yeah, I think so. I mean, so because I was running, I was kind of unaware of all of this happening um, until after I crossed the finish line. Um, but through my conversations with Jubilee and Jamil after the race, um, my understanding is they, you know, something in their, on their side of things kind of automatically took the gender category from ultra sign up. Um, hmm. and that's what people were focusing on. I, I don't, I don't know exactly what happened on that side of things, but that they were saying like, we kind of automatically went to the the gender button on this, um, not the race category. Um, I was totally in the dark too. I think, you know, I mentioned earlier, I was on the ground crewing for Brett and um, just knowing your background in the sport and how you've always competed in the female division. Um, you know, we did a pre-race uh, like predictions episode with Leah and Brett and, you know, we talked about you being a contender and then I saw you on the ground running and um I was always under the assumption that, you know, you were racing in the female category. And so when I got, when I kind of left McDowell and got back to internet connection and checked everything out, it kind of came as a shock to me, but okay, that's cool. Uh, I guess I have two questions here and maybe they just relate to your thoughts on what we can do better moving forward. Uh, I'm curious, what are, what are your general thoughts on the process for competing for awards in prize money as, as a non-binary athlete? Like, do you think that there should be over time an entirely uh, separate division to compete in? Or do you believe the current situation makes sense where, uh, you know, runners are recognized by their chosen gender identification while also being slotted into uh, a competitive category based on um, like their gender assignment at birth? Yeah. Um, I actually don't know that I have the answer to this one. I don't, I'm not really sure what I think. Um, I think, like I said, for me, like I, it, having this distinction works 
for me. Like I'm happy to compete in the female category. I'm biologically female. Like those are my competitive peers. Um, and then as long as, you know, people are referring to me the way I want to be referred to sort of Mm. outside of that, like that, that system works for me. Um, but there might be other people who that really doesn't work for. Um, and so I, I think it was cool what Aravipa did this year of, of having a, an entirely separate category. Um, it's difficult because like, you know, it's a minority identity. Like there aren't as many people who identify yeah. this way. Um, so having an entirely separate category to be competitive um, is difficult. And uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know that I have the answer to that question. <laughs> and by the way, I really appreciate the chance to talk about all this here. And uh, I just wanted to thank you for that. Cause I know it's, you know, there's still so much that's new and there's confusion. And uh, I just wanted to, you know, I know that, you know, it's not your preference to, to be public on a lot of these topics and, and questions, but it means a lot to me. And I think to the audience that you're willing to discuss some of it here. Um, What's next for you racing wise? Like, are you going to do anything between now and uh, Western States? Um, I I would like to. I'm not sure what it's going to be, um, but I, I'm going to take some time right now to just kind of recover and be happy with this most recent performance. Um, and then I'll start kind of figuring out what what the next thing is, because um, I I'd like to do something before now in Western States for sure. Right on. Well, we haven't done this in quite a while, but we have a lightning round of questions that I want to ask you before we leave here. The first is what is the most recent book, movie, podcast, or just piece of content you've consumed that left a good impression on you and you'd want to share with the audience? Oh man. Um, I guess uh, I've recently watched the new Elvis movie three times. Um, I had no idea, like sort of the, obviously this is like a dramatized, um, version of Elvis's life, but I had no idea sort of like the history or anything about his life. Um, and the music is fun. So, um, yeah, I, I enjoyed that movie. <laughs> is that on Netflix or HBO? What, what channel is it on? It's on HBO. And if you're flying on airplanes, it's on all of the airplanes. (laughs) Okay. I'll have to watch that, uh, on my trip back East for Thanksgiving. That's a good one. Um, a little bit of a weird question here. I sometimes ask it, what is something that you used to believe strongly that you have recently changed your mind about? And it could be training related. It could be something about food or another part of your lifestyle. Anything that comes up to mind? Oh man. Um, I guess I was vegetarian for 15 years and recently started eating meat again. Um, I haven't become a full carnivore, um, but uh, just to sort of make things more convenient when I'm traveling or over at people's houses um, to give myself a little bit more flexibility with that. Uh, So that's a pretty recent major lifestyle change. Last question. If you could put a message on a billboard for all to see, what would it say and why? Oh man, I was worried you were going to ask this one. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I don't know. 
have fun. <laughs> I, I don't, I don't know that I really have anything to, to tell people on a billboard. <laughs> well, Riley, it's, it's been great to meet. We really appreciate your time. We will make sure to link to all of your relevant social media in the show notes. We're wishing you, uh, the best of luck in training and prep for Western States. And then of course, to watch your race unfold next June. Anything else you want to leave the audience with before we go? Uh, no, I think that's it. Thank you so much for having me on. Thanks for listening. Before we sign off, if you are a fan of the show, please consider supporting us with a rating and review in your podcast player, a donation on Patreon, or the use of our sponsored discount codes in the show notes. Thanks again. We really appreciate your support. Really appreciate you listening. Until next time, I'm your host, Finn Melanson, and you have been listening to the Single Track Podcast.